0: Thanks for joining us for I Live This, Transforming Mental Health Through Personal Connection, a podcast exploring the ways that people draw on their life experiences to support others, innovate and advocate for change. I'm Donna Mosh, President and CEO of the Massachusetts Association for Mental Health. I Live This is a co-production of both MAMH and Kiva Centers. There's power in our experiences. They color our lives and how we interact with others. It's our hope that through these conversations, we can elevate individual voices and provide insight on the value of shared moments. We think you'll find that each of our experiences can drive change and foster connection, ultimately transforming the way we look at mental health. Stay with us for today's conversation coming up next. And don't forget to stick around after the interview for details on where to get related resources and more information.
1: I'm Andy Lamberto-Wilson and use he, him pronouns. I am a project manager at Boston Children's Hospital and a social work intern at MAMH. You're listening to I Live This, Transforming Mental Health Through Personal Connection. Our guest today is both a practicing therapist serving LGBTQ plus and relationship minority individuals and a leader in advocacy work as co-founder and leader of the New England Gender Care Consortium. Dr. Elizabeth Bosky's background is in women's reproductive biology and public health, and her research interests focus on the sexual and reproductive health of sexual and gender minority populations. We'll hear more about Liz's personal experience, advocacy, and work in today's conversation. Thank you for being with us, Liz. Happy to be here. So Liz, you've been a mental health provider for a long time and have done a lot of research in the field. Can you share how you first decided you wanted to do this work? And also, how have things changed throughout your career?
2: So I initially was a basic scientist, and I was very interested in reproductive health and sexual health. And... After doing that work for many years, I realized that I wanted to work more with people, and I decided to get a mental health degree. And so I went from being a basic science PhD to someone who, was, who had decided to do a master's in social work. And part of the reason I decided to do a master's in social work is that I was studying in a certification program for sexual health educators. And I was really disappointed and disturbed Mm. by how much the field of sexual health was really dominated by straight women and gay men and that the only focus on sexual health was basically heterosexual couples and gay men. And as a queer woman, I did not feel like I was very well represented in the in the space. And I was concerned that other people who I knew and cared about were not represented in the space. And so I became very excited about the thought of doing individual therapy and couples therapy with initially LGB people, but then really in my first internship became an instant almost advocate for transgender health. And I'd had transgender friends prior to my first internship, but I walked into my first internship, my first day of social work school. And those of you who haven't gone to social work school may think that you get trained in how to do therapy before you start your first day of internship, but you don't. You walk in the first day and they basically drop you in feet first. And I was told that there was a young transgender person there. They were misgendering her, but I will not misgender her. And that she had been told that I was coming and that I would be helpful. And there is this young transgender woman staring at me like I was going to save her life. And I felt like I knew nothing and I was not prepared. And the Mm -hmm. reason why they had said this to her was not that I had any training in working with trans people, but it was clear from my resume that I, I had worked in the HIV space and in the LGB spaces, and I didn't feel prepared. So on my own dime and on my own time, I sought out a lot of supervision and consultation on working with trans youth and really became deeply, deeply engaged and passionate about advocating for improvements in care for specifically gender minority youth.
1: Wow. Oh, that's really, that's, that's great to hear. And people are very lucky to have somebody like you to talk to. Have you noticed whether or not anything has changed from the beginning to now where you are today?
2: Yeah. So my therapy practice and my work in mental health, it's only been about a decade at this point, a little less than a decade, um, even though I've been working professionally in the field of sexual health for longer. And I do think that a lot has changed, but also that a lot hasn't changed. And I think if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have hoped that by now things would have been increasingly on an upswing and increasingly getting better. But what I am seeing is that even though earlier on um, in my career, we were doing a lot of pushing to improve access to education on working with LGBT people, the growing political hostility towards LGBT people has just made it so that if anything, It is harder for people to get care. It is harder for people to be safe. And a lot of times it really does feel like things are moving in the wrong direction rather than in the right direction. I do think that there are more opportunities to get trained with sexual and gender minority populations, which is great, but it's still not a standard component of education for many, many people, except for maybe one lecture in uh, human behavior in the social environment course.
1: Yes, I can concur that. That's been my experience in school as well. You know, you mentioned the kind of changing political atmosphere for LGBTQ plus people in the community, and it can be quite discouraging. So I, I wonder, how do you keep yourself going in this work?
2: I definitely have moments where I am incredibly disheartened by the consistent attacks on LGBT and really specifically transgender people across the country, and I find it upsetting and infuriating how often these attacks are based on nothing, and they fail to recognize the fact that gender-affirming care is evidence-based and is an important way for improving people's mental health and well-being, and The good thing is that mostly instead of being discouraged, I get angry and I don't want people to win and I become more and more dedicated to improving the evidence-based for gender affirming care and also trying to train providers so that there are more and more providers who offer gender affirming care. So mostly it makes me passionate and sometimes it makes me go and get ice cream.
1: Ice cream is an A-plus solution, I think. but
2: Usually not a solution unless it's melted. It's more of a solid.
1: You know, you got me there. (laughs) So you've mentioned that you train other professionals to work with the LGBTQ plus community. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you try to recommend to allies that are working with this population to provide more informed support?
2: So there are a couple of things that I recommend to allies. And one of the, the things that I recommend the most is that in order to be an effective ally and an effective therapist, you need to do your own work. You need to have done some thinking about your own gender and how it affects the way that you move through the world, the ways that your own sexual orientation and relationships and interactions affect the way that you move through the world. And then you need to do some basic education for yourself so that your clients don't have to educate you. And one of the things that I always do as a part of the trainings that I offer is say, I am available by email. If you have questions, please reach out to me. I would rather have you ask me or another professional in the area, the questions that you have rather than asking patients to educate you themselves. Because one of the things that we see in the research is that far too often LGBT, and again, specifically most often transgender patients are asked to explain and justify aspects of their life in ways that aren't relevant to the care that they're getting. I think the other big thing that I will often say to therapists who are training is that while sexuality and gender identity are really important aspects of a person's life, they're not the only aspects of a person's life. And they are not the only reasons why people are seeking care. And sometimes someone's sexual orientation or gender identity has nothing to do with the care that they need. They may be dealing with the death of a parent. They may be dealing with job stress. And not for you as a therapist to ask intrusive questions out of curiosity. You are not there to learn about what it's like to be an LGBT person, to put them under the microscope, to make them feel like they're a bug who's being studied, you are there to provide them with the help that they need. So that is one of the biggest things that I say. The other two big things that I always say are one, respect people's names, respect people's pronouns, treat them the way that you would want to be treated. And the hardest one, and this is one that I know I continue to struggle with and probably will struggle with for the rest of my life, is accept that you will make mistakes. And except that you will make mistakes, you will accidentally misgender someone, you will accidentally call someone by the wrong name, you may say something racist, you may say something sexist. And when you get called out on that or called in on that, it can be really uncomfortable. And it can be really tempting to be defensive and to make it about you. And the important thing is to do everything you can to not do that to uh, apologize sincerely for any harm that you have caused and to try and do better rather than making it about yourself. And that is hard. But one of the things that I have been told repeatedly in my trainings that makes the biggest difference is not saying if you make a mistake, it's when you make a mistake because we all make mistakes. And so practicing apologizing with sincerity practicing working and not being defensive can make a real big difference in how, when these situations come up, that you address them. And I also try very hard to model this in my behavior and to verbally acknowledge it when I
1: fail. Thank you. That's a really great answer. So I'm going to loop back a little bit to what you said at the beginning of that answer. When we think of allies, we want them to also do their own work. And I'm curious, so because you identify within the community as well, how have you drawn from your own experience to support others and do the advocacy work that you do?
2: I think that one of the ways in which being part of the queer community has been helpful for me as a therapist who primarily works with LGBT people and as an advocate is that I have some limited recognition of what it is like to be judged for a core aspect of my identity. But the other thing is that, yes, I am a queer woman, but I'm also a cis woman and I'm also a white woman and I have a lot of education and I have a lot of privilege. And I have been fortunate throughout my life to have an incredibly diverse group of friends and loved ones of various races, with various experience of disability, of various sexual orientations, and people who have been able to say, hey, you're not doing great here, or hey, this is a thing that I want you to work on. And as I said, it's sometimes it's hard to hear that, but that's been really helpful for me in trying to be an advocate and to be an ally. I think the other thing is that Yes, um, queerness and being part of the LGBT community is part of my identity, but it's only one part of my identity. And most of the work that I do as an ally and as an advocate, and actually most of the work that I do period is with the trans community and I'm not trans. And because of that, it is important for me to constantly elevate trans people and trans expertise whenever I can. And I sincerely try to put trans people ahead of me when it comes for opportunities to lift people up within the community when that's what they want, and also to take the burden off of people when that's what they don't want. I don't want trans people to have to explain what gender dysphoria is for the thousandth time. I can do that on their behalf if that's what they want. But Also, if that is something that they want to be involved in, if they want to be giving the seminar, I want them to give the seminar and I want to raise people up and give them the opportunities that they may not have had access to because they may have less privilege along one or more axes of identity.
1: So as somebody who is not a peer specialist and instead working as a social worker, how do you navigate self-disclosure in your work with clients or your work as a researcher?
2: It's a really good question. Self-disclosure is one of the things that we talk about constantly in social work and therapy training. And I think that the guiding principle for me is always, who is this for? I should never be self-disclosing because it is helpful to me. I should only be self-disclosing because it is helpful for my clients. And I come back all the time to a conversation that I had in my sex therapy training program. And I am going to be blunt and I really did not like one of the main instructors for my sex therapy training program. She was an older white woman that she primarily worked in this framework of working with gay men and straight people. She was incredibly focused on insertive penile sex. And she was very anti people saying anything about their identities or disclosing anything about their identities. She did not understand why anyone might advertise that they were a gay sex therapist or a sex therapist who had was had transgender experience or anything like that. And I called her out on it. And I said, what you don't understand is that when people look at you and they're interacting with you, they see. A uh, middle-aged to elderly white woman. And that makes them have certain assumptions about you that when they're interacting with you are pretty accurate. When they're interacting with me, they may not see a queer woman and the transference they're experiencing, the information they're experiencing may not be as accurate and that relationship may not be able to form. And there's a lot of data out there that one of the most helpful things in a therapeutic relationship is not the modality in which the therapist works, but the relationship with the therapist. And so there are times when for the formation of a relationship, and for that, I mean a therapeutic relationship, it is important and helpful to understand aspects of your therapist's identity. And one of the ways that this shows up, so it's the podcast, you can't see, but but if you could see me, you could see that I have purple hair. And before I dyed my hair purple, I talked to one of my bosses about it. And he said, how do you think it will affect your work with your clients? And I said, I think it will actually improve my work with my clients. And the weekend after I dyed my hair was actually pride. And I was down at my therapy job and I was waiting for a new couple client. And they walked into the room and I could see them just release a sigh of tension And I said, hello, and they said, oh, thank goodness you're our therapist. We saw you walk through the room, and we thought, she looks a little weird. I think we could get along with her. And having that visible difference in some ways, what feels like visible queerness in the way that I present, makes my LGBT clients often feel a little bit more comfortable with me. And that is also the purpose of disclosure. When I disclose, I don't disclose very much about my life. It's not appropriate. It's not helpful for me to do so, but sometimes it is important and sometimes it is helpful. And so that's when I do.
1: Thank you. That, that's really such a great way to think about self-disclosure, how you want to use it for benefiting your clients still and furthering that relationship because it is important for people to have representation in their clinicians. Are there any client stories or impact stories that come to mind that you would like to share about this work?
2: I feel incredibly blessed and incredibly privileged to have worked with the clients who I have had the opportunity to work with. I, at this point in my private practice, work almost exclusively with couples and almost exclusively with sexual and relationship minority couples. And so many therapists hate doing couples work. And I get it. In couples work, the relationship is right there in the room and that can be overwhelming. But the reason why I do couples work and the reason why I like doing couples work is that I find that even when I'm not doing couples counseling, a lot of times I'm doing couples work for people. And a lot of times I'm hearing about the relationship and the things that I hear about the relationship and like, can this possibly be what's happening? And so for me, I actually find it less stressful and more interesting to have the relationship in the room than I do to be hearing about the relationship and wondering if I'm providing useful therapy when I can't sort of get both halves of the dynamic if the dynamic is really important in the focus of care. I don't know that I have... Specific client stories or thoughts that I would share, other than the fact that it's always really exciting to me when one of my clients sort of hits the place where they don't need regular therapy anymore and they're just sort of like moving on and doing great things in their life. And I think that one of the hardest things for me as a therapist, and this has also been even more true when I'm working in hospital situations, is I care a lot about my clients. I also think they're really cool people and when they are out of care with me sometimes i wonder what they're up to and i i am old school i do not google my clients i do not look at at my clients facebook if they show up on tiktok or anything i i skip past them because i don't think that's appropriate and so sometimes i'm really curious about the things that are going on with them and i i miss them because they're really cool and they're really interesting but it continues to be an enormous privilege to work with the amazing people I have an opportunity to work with um, every day. And so I love that.
1: Yeah, I think what you're describing is a really special experience that therapists have when they see somebody come in or right off the bat and they're maybe really stressed out or anxious, learning a lot about themselves and then to see them grow into who they are. That sounds like it's really just a special moment to have. And I'm sure they feel very similarly to you in terms of how they reflect on their experience and have all the well wishes for you in the world.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And it's really, it's always really fun and really interesting to me sometimes to look back on what people first came into therapy for. And to see how far they've progressed, like working with someone who is afraid to leave the house. And then they are out in the world and they're dealing with some minor anxiety about a party. And I'm like, but you're leaving the house. Or people who didn't know if they would ever feel comfortable enough to get married. And they've been married for three years and they have a kid. And it's just, I love being able to just sort of look back and see how far people have come.
1: A lot of, social work school is really geared around fairly traditional models of therapy and I'm wondering if if you have found whether there's different approaches that have worked better for you and your clients um, that you wish had been talked about a little bit more in school.
2: So I think one of the strengths of social work school, the way it's most often taught is also one of the weaknesses of social work school, which is that I don't actually think we get much instruction in therapy modalities. We talk about the the social context and sometimes we'll talk about what therapeutic modalities are, but we don't do a lot of work in learning how to use them. And so a lot of my work in that area has happened after I left school. So I, after I left school, I went and I got trained in EMDR, which is a really helpful therapy for working with people who experience PTSD. I tend to, because of the areas in which I've worked, do a lot of solution-focused brief therapy, a lot of motivational interviewing. CBT. And all of these things are things that I've really had to seek out and do training in on my own. They weren't things that I was offered much in the way of training of in graduate school. Honestly, the only modality that I actually had a really good class in, in graduate school was couples therapy. I had an amazing couples therapy instructor, and I don't necessarily think that's why I ended up doing a lot of couples therapy, but it definitely had an impact. I think the flip side of that is because they throw us in with both feet the second we start school, we do have a lot of opportunity to practice, but the quality of that practice is deeply dependent on where we're training. So the first place that I trained was an inpatient psychiatric hospital, and it was a DBT facility, um, dialectical behavioral therapy. And that's what we did. We did DBT, we did DBT with everyone, DBT, can be great. It has uh, it was designed for a very specific purpose. I questioned even at the time whether DBT for everyone was really a great model, but I learned a lot about doing DBT there, which was something that I wouldn't have learned in, from in school from day to day. So I think in terms of what has been most useful for me as a therapist, I do a lot of CBT. I do a lot of motivational interviewing, but honestly, because of the clients who I see, a lot of what I do is just seeing people. And by that, I mean looking at them and seeing them for who they are and validating their life experiences and believing them and just being a person who can sit with them and see them for who they are. And working when I'm doing trainings on working with transgender people in particular, I often just talk about how powerful an intervention it is to see someone and just to sit with someone and see them for who they are. And so I'm lucky that that gets to be a lot of the work that I do.
1: Right. I I usually find that just showing up is half the work. And everything from there is really, you know, you're building a relationship one way or the other. You're learning things along the way. So kind of take what you can. (laughs) Um, I'd like to just switch gears a little bit. Can you share more about what you do in your Uh, macro and advocacy work?
2: So I do a lot of research and advocacy and writing around sexual and gender health um, for, I want to say, might have been 15 years. Was it 15 years? Might have only been 13 years. I was actually doing a lot of health writing online on sexual and gender health. So I was writing about gender identity, writing about sexual identity, writing about STDs, doing a lot of just patient-facing communication about both mental and physical health in these areas. I also just do a lot of education. I do a lot of trainings for other social work departments, for college students, for psychology students where I go and I do, honestly, quite basic talks, often on gender-affirming care and LGBT health. I used to do a bunch of trainings on polyamory and relationship minority clients when I was doing more in the sex therapy realm. And just, honestly, so much of my advocacy is, look, there are people out here who are different than you, and it would be great if you knew how to work with them in a way that was not cruel. And that was affirming and kind and accepting. And a lot of that is just going over the basics again and again and again. And I remember probably five years ago, I was presenting at an NASW meeting and it was supposed to be a transgender 201 talk. And once again, it became the same transgender 101 talk. And there were three people in there who were really frustrated because they wanted the 201 talk, but everyone was like, no, but I need to know the basics. I don't, I don't understand what pronouns are. I don't understand what gender dysphoria is. I don't, what is this whole gender affirming care thing? What, what are the basics? And so I spent a lot of time doing the basics and, There's good to that. The more that you do the basics with more and more people, the more that people have the basics. But I think sometimes it's frustrating for people who want to go beyond the basics. And so one of the ways that I have tried to address that in my work is through the creation of the New England Gender Care Consortium. And that came about out of a queer health hackathon that was sponsored by Tegan and Sarah about five or six years ago. And you applied to be part of this hackathon and about a hundred of us came there. And I was sitting there talking to some other professionals in gender affirming care about the fact that we didn't understand why some people were so, what I like to refer to as grabby hands over their patient because there are so many transgender people who need good care. And all we could think about was that, like, we all offer very different things. And if we could work together to help people get to the care that was most appropriate for them, we could help more people and that there was no need need to have grabby hands and no reason to have grabby hands. And so I ended up putting together what has become the New England Gender Care Consortium with providers from a bunch of different hospitals. And now we have 60 or 70 providers from 18 hospitals around the area. And we've been meeting less since the start of the COVID pandemic because all of us have been overwhelmed, but it's offered a lot of opportunity for work and research, for referrals, for learning about each other's programs and for helping people get the care that they need. And one of the amazing things about being in New England is that I'm actually part of three groups like that. So there's the group that I run that is focused really on the medical side of things. And that also does a bunch of research and education. There is a New England gender specialists listserv, which is all therapists who offer gender affirming care, where we do a lot of who has openings, can we send you patients? There's also the New England Trans Health Coalition, which is a mixture of providers, lawyers, advocates, and educators who work on gender-affirming policy in the state of Massachusetts. So one of the amazing things about doing this in Massachusetts is that there are so many opportunities to be an advocate because we are in a state that is generally very accepting. I will say one of the other incredible ways that I have been able to be an advocate and to work in advocacy is working with insurance companies to improve their policies around gender-affirming care. And I've had the opportunity to do that with a major insurer, and I've really enjoyed that. They listen, and they want to do better. And I have a better idea of why sometimes people aren't offering certain types of care while at the same time being able to push for them to offer more. It's felt like a really really powerful way to be an advocate.
1: That's that's really amazing work that you're doing across the board there, what got you in that door? How did you go about like that first interaction? Was it through one of these consortiums or?
2: Good question. I don't remember what, so, so often I do actually remember the first thing that got me in that door, but that's one of the ones that I don't, because I can't remember if someone recommended me or Mm. if someone reached out to the program that I was part of and had a question and I answered it. And that, led to me being invited to participate. I know that with the insurance company work that I have done, I am often recommending other people who they should talk to, and who I think would provide useful perspective. And a lot of those recommendations do come from these consortia. So who you know is how you make these connections and get these recommendations.
1: So I guess related to what you were just talking about in terms of all of these amazing networks that exist in New England, Do you have anything you'd share with somebody who is maybe in a different part of the country world, who's maybe feeling a little isolated and struggling to get things like this off the ground?
2: So one of the things that I would suggest is look and see what's out there and look and see what's out there locally, look and see what's out there nationally. So there are some amazing national LGBT organizations, GLSEN, GLSEN, which is the Gay and Lesbian Student Education Network, the Trevor Project, the LGBTQ MAP Project, which is actually called the Movement Advancement Project, um, HRC, so many organizations that are doing national advocacy work. There are also national organizations like PFLAG that do local work, And reaching out to organizations that already exist in your area can be a great way to find other people who are doing that work. Similarly, looking to see um, at any, if there are any academic institutions in your area, if there are any colleges, they will often have an LGBT resource page, allows you to find other people who are doing the work that you are interested in, but also to see who might be writing or publishing about the things that you are interested in. And there are national groups for support. I also, specifically if you're interested in working with trans populations, highly recommend some of the national meetings like Gender Spectrum or the Philadelphia Trans Wellness Conference, which give you opportunities to pick up professional education, but also network with other people who are doing the work. And that can be particularly useful if you live in an area of the country where you don't have a lot of support.
1: Thank you. I think that's going to be really helpful. Uh, for people to think about, because a lot of times people are inclined to reinvent the wheel for every new idea. And, you know, it it sometimes does just take looking at what exists and seeing how you can continue to build those wheels that that are out there.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I have found so frustrating occasionally over time, because I know I've certainly done it when I was a social work student, I was an intern at Fenway Health and my mentor there had a pile of paper and that pile of paper was his list of trans-affirming providers around the country. And I looked at that and I said, how do you find anything? And he basically said, I don't. And so what I did when I was at Fenway as an intern that then became a project that I have kept up in the intervening decade, was I created the Trans Care site, which is just literally a basic site that is a directory of trans-affirming providers. There is some checking, but mostly I can't make promises about anyone who's there. And every at this point, six months to a year or so, someone else comes out with a directory, which is great. However, it would be even better if we could all work together and merge all of these directories together. And I think part of the problem is that if you're trying to monetize it, you want to do your own thing. If you're just trying to collect resources for people, you want it to be thorough. And it's hard to figure out how to make those connections to not continually reinvent the wheel and do the same thing over and over again. But it's something that In my work as a researcher, I'm really passionate about. I hate having to do the same task over and over and over again, if there is any way that I can avoid it.
1: I've been speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Bosky, social worker, researcher, and co-founder of the New England Gender Care Consortium. Her website, negendercare.org, features more information about ways to get involved in improving access to gender-affirming care, and resources for individuals, friends, and family members. Thank you, Liz, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. We really appreciate the work that you do to ensure that gender diverse and relationship minority individuals get the services and support they need. Um, it's been amazing chatting with you and you know it's, it's always fun to get to catch up a little bit. So really appreciate your time here.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for I Live This, Transforming Mental Health Through Personal Connection, a podcast from the Massachusetts Association for Mental Health and Kiva Centers. You can find more information about the podcast at mamh.org. If you have questions or comments or would like to share your experience, email us at info at or find us on social media. Today's conversation is the last in our I Live This series for May is Mental Health Month. For past episodes, visit mamh.org or your favorite podcasting platform.